Welcome to Here Comes Yesterday, a weekly 15-minute podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead with your host, Frank Corrado. Podcast 29, Burst of Energy. As we gently tiptoe into the new year of 2023 and think about our plans and life and the future and all that stuff, here's a little exercise you might want to try. Grab a pencil and paper and draft up a quick chronology of your life so far. You can group certain time frames together by how they fit in the overall arc of your life. For example, you can group what happened by decades or by milestones like getting married or going to college or your first job. Here's a partial list of what I recently sketched out for myself. I blocked out my life by decade, but any distinction here will work. So my first entry is 1942, when I was born, to 1952. We call them the startup years. I guess I don't remember a lot about the first five years of my life, other than what my parents told me. These childhood years were very impressionable and mostly carefree, and most of the time was spent around my home and neighborhood and learning life's basics in school, playing in empty lots in the neighborhood, hanging around my parents and seeing what they were doing. My second decade, 1952 to 1962, I call it the age of growing up. In this second decade of my life, I was full into the institutions that would propel me into adulthood the church, the schools, scouting, neighborhood activities like at the parks, working in my family business, learning about girls. In this second decade of life, I transitioned from grade school to high school. It also became a time when I started to think about what I wanted to do with my life. When I came into my third decade, this is where my life seems to take off. The burst of energy, I call it, 1962 to 1972. And that's where I'll be coming back to in a minute. In the fourth decade, 1972 to 82, I remember this as running kind of at full throttle with everything going on all over the place. And the fifth decade, 1982 to 1992, was a time when I went solo and started my own business. Other decades followed where I went back to work and business, then retired temporarily, and finally started up with my son into our most exciting business, farming, growing blueberries in Michigan, a gig that I'm still happily involved with. Now the trajectory of life and its high points may be totally different for all of us, each of us. The period I want to focus on in my own case was that third period, that third decade, starting when I was a sophomore in college. I was an early bloomer, I will admit, and I'm guessing that this period from ages 18 to 28 may not be the same place where others kind of bloom. They may be later, some of them may be even earlier. There are those of you, I'm sure, who were on a more gradual rise in your lives, and maybe your peak years of productivity were in your 40s or 50s or 60s, 
my time came a bit early. But whenever, whenever that period of peak performance comes in your life, it's good to go back and ponder a little bit about what made it so. It seems a little ironic to me that while my burst of energy came in my 20s mostly, uh, that I see people today, young people today, just not being able to push forward as quickly. It may be harder now to do that. Consider that I was given a very good private high school education, then went on to the University of Notre Dame, but also college costs back then in the 60s were reasonable. You could attend a top school like Harvard with room and board for about $2,000 a year. Kids these days have to pay so much more for not much more. At age 18, I had persevered. I was an Eagle Scout. I'd been co-editor of my high school yearbook as a junior, an editor of the school newspaper as a senior. Just as important, I'd had the good fortune to be the son of a small business owner and had been working since the age of 13 in my dad's garden center. Those skills that I learned there, hard work, customer service, all have stayed with me for such a long time. Back in the early 60s, young people also married earlier. So there was that model to follow. By the end of that decade, I had done just that, gotten married and had two children. Not unusual for that time. When I first arrived at college, I got a visit from an upperclassman who encouraged me to join the ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps, basically a college program to uh, let you become an officer in the military. Having been in scouts already for a decade, joining a uniformed service did not seem to be much of a stretch, and there was this altruistic feeling at that time, remember this is the 70s, about giving, 60s, I'm sorry, about giving back to your country. Remember who was president in 1960. That was still the patriotic feeling we in the Midwest here all aspired to, even though the winds of change in society were already blowing out of the soon-to-be hippie and anti-war movements forming in San Francisco. So when I went in to the military, the world was one way, and when I came out of it, it was a wholly different thing. Also, when I started college, I volunteered to work at a student radio station and ended up writing commercials and producing a radio documentary that was looking at how the university was about to undergo a massive modernizing effort. But actually, I was feeling a little underappreciated there for my efforts, so I found an ad in a local newspaper seeking someone to sell advertising. When I applied, I was told that the job had been filled by a young guy who worked at the TV station owned by the newspaper, and maybe I might like to apply for his old job. Thus became my early career in television news with a local CVS affiliate in South Bend, Indiana. I can't imagine that scenario today, but this was 1962. So all of a sudden, I was working 37 hours a week, taking a full load of college classes, and enjoying it all. And yes, I did have a social life as well. I still lived in the dorm and went out on dates and did other things like go to football games, of course, at Notre Dame. When I graduated from college, I was supposed to go to the Army, 
but I got a deferment to attend graduate school in journalism back at the Northwestern in Chicago. If I had gone into the service then in 1964, I might have gotten my dream job, being stationed in Europe with Army Intelligence. But my deferring to go to grad school for two years put me right between the crosshairs of that quickly expanding war in Vietnam. While going to grad school, I also went back to helping out at the Family Garden Center after my summer boot camp. Journalism school was generally a breeze, since I'd already worked in the business for two years, but it was also a time when I was anxious to get settled down in my personal life, and so I rekindled an old flame from my days in South Bend, and in the autumn of 1965, we were married and had our reception on campus, of course on a non-football weekend, obviously. At the time, I was also working part-time for a large community chain of newspapers doing general assignment investigative reporting. Now, all this had happened within a four-year period. So, yes, I was on a roll, but suddenly it stopped, and for the next two years, I was owned by Uncle Sam. I started out at, at the Army Intelligence School in Baltimore, but was whisked over to Southeast Asia two months later. I was sent there, by the way, with no training to work as a POW interrogator, but ended up actually doing civic affairs work for the 101st Airborne Division in the country's Central Highlands. I really enjoyed being with the Army's premier fighting unit, but unfortunately, my job helping civilians out and trying to win their hearts and minds was undermined by my boss, a young, ill-educated captain who had ideas that could eventually get me killed, like going to do projects in places the locals told you to stay out of. So I found a job working for a unit whose mission was to support reporters and news teams sent over to cover the war. That was a good job, setting up lodging for war correspondents in different parts of the Vietnam, <clears throat> talking helicopter pilots into taking reporters and crews where the action was, and then connecting reporters with uh, sources for their stories. It was a little less dangerous than hanging out with the paratroopers, but rewarding nonetheless. I might mention that the time I was in Vietnam, 1966 and 67, was a good time to be there if ever there was any. It was a period of the American buildup, so I was lucky once again. And since I was a civilian area person and had time available, I took on a part-time job there teaching English for the local Vietnamese. My first gig as a teacher, I enjoyed it a lot. Coming home from Nam, I was sent back to Baltimore to do PR for the Intelligence Command. Kind of an oxymoron, you'd think, huh? Intelligence agencies don't do PR. Of course, that was then. Now, actually, they do. But in Baltimore, I hustled up a part-time job as a news writer cameraman for the local NBC affiliate. Baltimore was kind of a backward media town, but the work was fun, filming local sports, circus, visits, politics, boxing, all kinds of stuff. At the Intelligence Command, I did a little employee newsletter, and I did the kind of stuff 
uh, like that, but also handled the 50th anniversary of the Army's Counterintelligence Corps, which included uh, securing a proclamation uh, from the governor at the time, Spiro Agnew. The proclamation came in a white envelope. Spiro's uh, downfall, as you may remember, eventually was due to taking too many white envelopes as vice president under Nixon. Baltimore was a fun time. We ran with a fast crowd, hung out at city dives like Peabody's Bookstore, did things that people in their 20s are supposed to do. And just as I was wrapping up my time with the Army on active duty, Martin Luther King was assassinated. I spent the weekend holed up in the command center gathering reports from our field agents. We tried, but we were no match for the reporters of the Associated Press. It was time to move on. So where were we now? Six years into the busiest decade I'd ever known, and it was 1968, the most memorable year of that decade by far. While military pay for a lieutenant wasn't a lot, we'd saved a bit when I was overseas, and so we're looking to the future, we decided that as soon as I was released from active duty, May of 1968, we'd make room for a once-in-a-lifetime trip and go camping through Europe for three months. In retrospect, a good move. That three-month deserves its own podcast, but a highlight for sure was a brief stay at a little town in the hills north of Naples called Calvello. We stopped there to connect with my grandmother's uh, maternal grandmother's family, the Galicios. We had bought a VW Squareback station wagon for the trip and had it fitted with hinges so that the back could seat could uh, be slid forward and you could sleep in the car. When we pulled up to Calvello, I asked a red-headed man in Spanish, because I was clueless in Italian, if there were any people there with the name Galicchio. Tutto Galicchio, he smiled. Everybody there was a Galicchio, and he understood Spanish because some other family members had migrated to Argentina, just as many had migrated to the U.S. I was approached by a woman who was a cousin of my grandmother, and and she tentatively asked me if I wanted to stay overnight. She looked a little trepidatious asking that question, and, and so I was confused, but I responded, well, can my wife stay too? Well, instantly, there were big smiles, the atmosphere changed. Seems that most of the men in the village were in Germany building autobahns, so a stray male in town was something to be concerned about in this hill town. With all that out of the way, we had a wonderful say and meeting relatives, and we would correspond with them for years afterwards. Two other highlights of the trip were an overnight stay on the left bank in Paris, unfortunately followed by a hasty escape to Spain as riots broke out and cars started getting burned. The other highlight was a visit to Prague in Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic now, during the Prague Spring, and befriending a young student with a ride and years of correspondence after that amazing visit to a communist country on the verge of, of a, a short span of freedom. Arriving back home, I contacted the local CBS station 
about getting a job. A former newspaper guy with a gold-plated family name in Chicago journalism had hooked me up with the news director, and I was about to, uh, and I was ready to start. But the Democratic Convention of 1968 was also about to start, so I would need to wait a couple of weeks. And of course, I missed a hell of a story. After about six months at the local CBS station, I left to uh, hook up with a new government agency that was about to become the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and that would lead to another exciting time. On the home front, we lived for a couple of years in an upcoming city neighborhood near the lake, welcoming a son and a daughter, and by the end of 1971, we had bought an old frame house in Evanston. So it was now 1972, and that big burst of energy for a decade is coming to an end. A lot of that burst of energy decade was driven, I guess, by my own ambitions, but a lot of it was in the milieu of a tumult very tumultuous time. Anyway, it seemed to all come together, and now it was time to settle down. I just want to interject here about how older people, including myself, were and are surprised when they retire that their days are so busy and full of doing things. As someone whispered in my ear, it really takes old people longer time to do the multitasking things that they could do in a very short time when they were younger. So it would be pretty hard to, to repeat that big burst, I think. When was your big burst of energy? Well, figure it out. <laughs> You've got the pencil and paper. Did it all come in one time? Did it come in bursts, uh, many bursts? Uh, did it come over a decade like mine? Um, were they all positive and upbeat things during that time? Um, sometimes they're not. Anyway, it's, it's a good thing to do. Look at, look at your life. Look at what happened and um, enjoy the memories of the good times. We all have our stories. We need to tell them so that others may learn. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This is Mel Zellman. Thank you for listening. And catch us next time 